Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Dr. Stephen Wagner. Stephen is currently Senior Lecturer in International Security at Brunel University in London. And Stephen is the author of a number of publications, and I want to mention here a couple of them, certainly uh, the book that was published in 2019, Statecraft by Stealth. Secret Intelligence and British Rule in Palestine, and uh, also a recent article published in 2020, Unearthed the Wartime Archive of Amin al-Husayni. And most of his publications are very much related to uh, intelligence. So today, we're going to look into the world of intelligence, and if I can say the word spy, during the British-minded uh, period, with a focus on Palestine and obviously also with a, a few details about Jerusalem. But first thing first, Stephen, welcome. Thank you. To paraphrase the Australian Signals Directorate, uh, that's their listening agency. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I guess this was a tweet uh, that was published today, right? Well, I, I retweeted it today. I was thinking about it for the podcast. Yeah, that was their first tweet. I thought it was very funny at the time. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Stephen, first question, how did you get to work on intelligence and more importantly on intelligence in Palestine during the British period? So when I was an undergraduate student in Calgary, it's my hometown, I uh, was in a full year course on the history of intelligence and the state. And this was led by Professor John Ferris, who was later my MA advisor and his, it remains a mentor and friend today. And as a, you know, I was always interested in, in Israel and, and the conflict in Palestine. And I was um, 
writing a paper for him about the Jewish armed resistance against British rule in the 1940s, the very same time, the UK National Archives began to declassify their security service files about that very topic. And so John knew I needed to do an honors dissertation. And he said, why don't you, if you afford it, go there, collect the material, do it on this. So that kind of snowballed into this career and uh, the publications you mentioned in the book and so on. Um, so that's the short version of it. So no interest in uh, discovering some 007 in Palestine, right? I found a few of them, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's because I always thought, so the paper and that like, it make, you know, creeps me out reading it as, you know, a third year undergraduate paper I wrote, but like, I, I, you could see the kind of ideas already building there. Like I, was, I conceived of the Jewish agency for Palestine as a kind of, you know, ha having, because like learning all the intelligence concepts in his course, I realized like actually they're doing so much of that and more and it's all integrated in this kind of prototypical state. And I wanted to learn more about kind of how they organized kind of secret resistance activity against the British. So this turned into, I turned my honors thesis into a, an article which was published in 2008 in Intelligence and National Security. And I think that remains the only undergraduate paper they, they've published. So I, I hold that title. I, I, I hope I still hold that title. But the, um, it argued basically that the, the British security service files show that they have no idea what they're dealing with. That it takes them months and months to realize that Haganah has started to work with the terrorists. That the Haganah, the Jewish, uh, the main Jewish militia had started to work with the two terrorist groups, the Irgun and Lehi, the two, uh, one was led by Beg and the other Yitzhak Shamir, both future prime ministers, of course. Now, this is a perfect opening because obviously here it shows how many interesting stories can be told about intelligence uh, in Palestine. So let me take a step back. The British arrives in Jerusalem in 1917 and, and essentially they take over with the creation of a mandate system. And we know that there was a, a, some sort of a, let's say called Ottoman uh, intelligence service called Teshkilati Masusa, which was very much a secret police uh, that also wasn't tasked with the idea of gathering information and intelligence um, on behalf of the Ottomans. Is there any legacy uh, left how did the British develop uh, the intelligence service? And also, can you give us a sense of what intelligence is at this point in time for the British? Right. We'll take one thing at a time. Intelligence as a profession in the British Empire is, does not meet the kind of professional standards we expect from today, right? Um, there's no like analytic boards and, you know, people using rigorous social scientific methods to like, and, and rating, you know, their, their confidence in an analysis is usually just a guy and usually a man, although there are exceptions, providing their kind of best take on, on a problem. And sometimes they have a good understanding of what's happening, sometimes they don't. The British absorb not, not very much from the Ottoman special organization, it was very competent. Um, it obviously and famously broke up the Neely spying in Zichron Yaakov, 
um, that was a Zionist spy network set up by the Aronson uh, family uh, that was sending information on Ottoman positions and economic situation and so on to the British. This was also an important instrument for the Zionist movement in their pitch to the British government about how useful it would be for them to issue uh, a promise such as the Balfour Declaration. So you can see the trade of intelligence is already quite important at this early stage. As, as for the British, they set things up in a military context, in a wartime context. So the end of 1917, they arrive in Jerusalem. They actually, Allenby's army has a very well-developed intelligence staff, very professional veterans of it write quite fondly of it. So one veteran of Allenby's general staff is Archibald Wavell, who is later high commissioner in Palestine during the revolt and is later commander in chief of the armed forces in the Middle East during the Second World War. So he has a kind of concept about the right way to organize your military staff and the intelligence branch of it. And he, he models a lot of his ideas on Allenby. However, and Allenby does introduce a lot of, his staff do introduce a lot of kind of modern innovations. There's this famous haversack ruse from the, you know, third battle of Gaza, right? You send false plans on a corpse that the Ottomans believe to be true. And it, this is probably all myth, right? Um, but the, the idea and that, that everyone believed in kind of lived on and actually really start, shaped the kind of British military mentality toward intelligence. The other thing they're very good at this period is relying on the local people. So as the front moves up, they recruit whoever they can to fulfill these kinds of functions as informants, as pathfinders, as um, interrogators and translators. So a lot of the stars of, of my book actually begin their intelligence career doing this, including Amino Husseini, by the way, he was uh, working in translation for the British um, from 1918 onward, and including Joseph Davidescu, who was part of the Neely spy ring originally, and uh, later kind of worked for all sides, he was a British security service officer until his assassination in 1945. I was wondering, since you talked about, you know, the, the arrival of the British and the establishment of this intelligence service, what is that they were looking for? I mean, you already mentioned, obviously, activities uh, of the Zionists and I'm sure of the Arab nationalists, but is there any specific uh, kind of item that they are looking for, or kind of information that they're interested in gathering? And uh, what was the purpose of, of that? So, until the armistice of Mudros, the military intelligence is interested in winning the war. That's it. Which means they are get recruiting people to help, you know, guide the army. They're recruiting people who can help process prisoners of war and, uh, you know, as translators and, you know, to help translate records that they're capturing and so on. Um, kind of very basic functions, mapping, etc. The moment the war is over, so to speak, <laughs> the moment the war is over, they are 
dealing with a completely different set of problems. However, all the same personnel are there. So suddenly they have to deal with the next steps. What's our policy on government? How do we divide the region with the French? Which of our many agreements are we using as a basis for this? Um, so one of their first moves actually is to negotiate the British retreat southward as the French troops are able to start pouring into Syria. Um, they contribute very little to the conquest of Syria, of course. Like that said, the British contribute very little to the conquest of Constantinople, the French do, you know. So this is kind of horse trading, I suppose. And this is all the general staffs handling these negotiations. The other thing they're looking at is security. The staff intelligence have a job to kind of survey the population and understand actually what are the threats to us as the occupying power. And so they start to collect information about political organization. Because the moment the war is over, actually free speech prevails and newspapers go back into business and the kind of formerly secret societies and clubs that you know nationalists had organized themselves under were now operating out in the open on the, under the reasonable expectation that this war and the armistice would lead to independence and self-government for Arabic speaking peoples. So general staffs are deeply involved in what's happening in Paris. They know that they're not, this outcome is not gonna be fulfilled. This is one of their first problems is managing the peace conference on the one hand, local security concerns, the nascent Jewish Arab conflict, and so on. I was curious about the structure. Obviously with the establishment of the mandate, the British are essentially governing Palestine. <clears throat> and I'm curious about how did they sort of establish their intelligence service? Did they use, right. uh, I don't know, Jerusalem as a, a base or was it IFA? Uh, who are the master spies? Who are the, uh, you know, do we have offices that are essentially dealing with intelligence coming in? And also, uh, you know, looking at sort of a, the, the branches of it, how did they operate uh, on, on the local grounds? Uh, you know, who are the contacts essentially? Again, these things change once the war is over. When the war is on, the intelligence service is basically attached to the general staff. It's a, it's a department of the general staff or branch, as it's known. Um, when the war is over, under military government, more or less functions the same way. But they're recruiting more local people and collaborating more with local helpers. So one thing they do, um, they recruit people they trust into the Signals Intelligence Service that in 1919 was founded as the Government Code and Cipher School and today is known as GCHQ. They're the ones who you know, um, are tapping you know, uh, telegraph cables and that kind of thing. Um, and today, you know, manage like cyber warfare in this kind of field. The, at the time, their main function is 
cryptanalysis, code breaking, and cryptography, code making, right? Um, and they're an excellent source for the Foreign Office. They get right to work and they set up a base. Originally, it's in um, Constantinople. When the British leave by 1922-23, it's relocated to Trifin, uh, what's today the IDF base in Trifin, uh, at the time was known as uh, Sarafand. And um, this is a very important listening station for the British and probably one of the most neglected in term, because the sources haven't been great until relatively recently. There is a big push in the London-based security service, MI5, and secret intelligence service, MI6, to set up an imperial intelligence service permanently once the war ends. Turns out there's no money for that sort of thing and no political will to make it work. So what happens in Palestine is during the period of military government, all the kind of experts, and I say that in air quotes that you can see, of course, the listeners may not see, that the experts um, working in the general staff intelligence start taking on kind of secretariat roles, district governorships, that sort of thing. When the switch to civilian rule begins in 1920 under Herbert Samuel, the same people continue doing the same jobs. They just take off their uniforms and wear a suit to work instead. So during the British mandate, I suppose, as you mentioned in the opening, obviously the British were interested in gathering information about various movements. And here I want to start talking about essentially you know, what were they looking for, for instance, you know, dealing with the uh, emerging Arab nationalism? Mm -hmm. Were they, what were their fears? And how did they sort of uh, deal uh, with Arab nationalists? Uh, were also able to plant informants? Did they have a source of uh, internal information? Uh, you know, if you can give us a sense of how British intelligence operated towards uh, Arab nationalism. And obviously later, we're gonna see how they operated towards uh, the Zionist. Right. So some British officers actually have good sources of their own and good access. The British problem is money. Their budgets are tiny. So if you're Ronald Stores, another, you know, uh, district governor, right? Actually, you have decent relationships quite quickly that you can use to get a sense of what's happening in the Palestine Arab Congress, in the Arab Club, in the uh, Literary Society, etc. Um, however, this is a kind of an exception. Most cases, the general staff intelligence officers who now are wearing civilian clothes are quite dependent on their Zionist partners. And the Zionists, of course, have been doing this kind of work since the war. It comes in different forms. One thing I didn't get to write about as much in the book is the, you know, the one he was a leading figure in Hashomer Tzair, I think, Chaim um, Margalit Kalvariski. He was not doing exactly spycraft, but was famous, I suppose, at the time because during the war, when finance from France was cut off, he still managed to raise funds for land acquisitions during the war and had a good grip on, you know, who are our neighbors, this kind of, these kinds of questions. 
So this is inform information is useful for lots of purposes. It's useful, of course, for designers project, like who's gonna be willing to sell us land. It's useful, of course, to the British because the same data actually apply to their questions. Like, you know, who's going to organize a revolution or who's gonna cooperate? That's kind of one stream of, of this field. The other one are the remnants of the Neely network that I mentioned before. So although Aaron Aronson dies um, during the Paris Peace Conference, I think in a plane crash, his brother Al, uh, Alex takes things over and he um, works quite closely with the general staff, builds his own networks, etc. The Zionist commission in Palestine has a very large budget and they're able to pay for whatever information they want. And this comes with this is a kind of double-edged sword. It's great to have people lining up to give you information. On the other hand, you have no way of checking if this is reliable. And I think quite a lot of people probably took advantage of this to their credit, you know. <laughs> um, so I think you have a situation where between the two sides, the British and the Zionists, actually in terms of like bureaucratic organization, the Zionists are quite more advanced at this early stage. So they're able to pay for sources. One of the things that happens is they also get reliable sources of their own. So one of the earliest examples is there is a, an Italian naval commander, a Jew named Angelo Levi Bianchini, who is attached to, at first he's an attache to Alan B's staff. And then he joins Weizmann's Zionist Commission. And he ends up producing really good indicator and warning type intelligence for both the Zionists and the British. So when there are plans to stage a kind of revolt in Jerusalem in 1919 during Nabi Musa, which um, takes place during Passover Easter and is a kind of, you've discussed on this show, uh, an important Palestinian national holiday. Um, this warning allows the military governor to deploy troops and kind of stop it before it starts. Fast forward one year, and Bianchini is with Faisal, so he's not in town anymore. And actually, the whole apparatus falls apart. It all depended on having this one person who can check. Um, so despite having all these resources, the Nebi Musa riots of 1920, as they're known to the British anyway, end up um, surprising everybody. I was exactly thinking about that and to ask you questions about the, the role of intelligence when, when we think about events like 1920, maybe Musa riots or 1929, which seemed to suggest that the British, when they were probably able to predict uh, tension, but not the outbreak of violence and certainly violence at that level. And so I was wondering, is that a failure of intelligence? And if so, to what extent, what did it fail? Was that the communication with the people or the inability of analyzing the material collected? Right. 
So I teach a course called Intelligence, History, Failure, and Success. One of the things we do is problematize the notion of intelligence failure. I think often it's a kind of, you know, red herring or a canard. It's a thing that politicians use to deflect blame, basically. Um, but the if there's a failure, there has to be a kind of reasonable expectation of professional standards, right? But there were none at the time on the British side, right? If you look at like other European armies who had general staffs since like, you know, for decades and decades, okay, you could expect more from them. But the British established their general staff like a decade before the First World War. It's a kind of unusual project for them, a permanent one anyway. Like if we were to say that they failed to anticipate, you know, this, this revolution, you could blame them for, kind of not understanding the local population, their interests, not hearing them exactly what they were saying in their petitions, in their private and public discussions, et cetera, just like tuning it out. Um, but for kind of failing to analyze the evidence available and saying, oh, we can anticipate a revolt here. Um, this was not how things worked at the time, I would say. It would be an unusual, for the British anyway, an, an unusual outcome. However, there are a kind of, and there was a, te a tendency at the time, I think, as these ideas were being ironed out, to kind of misunderstand events as they were happening because the British put a lot of faith in experts who aren't experts. They have few linguists who are actually interested in helping them. Um, and they also are relying on a kind of conspiratorial worldview that always will leap to an assumption about, you know, if something is happening here that looks like something, something that's happening over there, they must be linked. And that's not what was happening. So what I'm talking about here is, this is like kind of a year of revolutions, right? 1919, 1920 even beyond, of course, in this region. And so when they see Mustafa Kemal's campaign and his pan-Islamic propaganda, they assume, of course, the Turks must be financing Palestinian agitators. Now, are they in communication? Yes, and there's like documented proof of that. But is this part of one big anti-imperial conspiracy? No like everyone has their own interests and their own national project. We know, of course, now Mustafa Kemal was not seriously committed to pan-Islamism at all. <laughs> and, um, you know, being the one to abolish the caliphate and all that. Um, but the intelligence staff at the time look at what's happening and they say, oh, there must be a connection. The Arabs and the Turks are working together against us. Um, so this is a kind of, and also like the Bolsheviks are working with the pan-Islamists against us. Uh, these, again, this tendency to see things through a kind of conspiratorial lens, it just shows their um, weak grip on the personalities involved, their interests, their organization. Um, the, and it, it's weak because they're always, they're frequently dependent on a guy 
one man to kind of present information in English to them, you know? Talking about conspiracies, I, I wonder how also they related to, uh, to the Jews, not just as Zionists, but the fact that they're Jewish and therefore obviously, you know, anti-Semitism, uh, widespread back then, and also these theories about, uh, uh, you know, some sort of a world order and, uh, you know, the Jews controlling uh, uh, the financial markets and, and it's also sort of the market of information. How did the British uh, sort of negotiate these stereotypes with the reality that now they are dealing with them? I should, I should hope it's well known, at least in academic circles, that one of the unique selling points of the Balfour Declaration during 1916 and 17 when it was being pitched and crafted was, and this was promoted by Weizmann himself, was that Jews were a powerful influence block in America and Europe and Russia. And so they actually exploit this anti-Semitic view in order to get what they want from British policymakers. Um, I think most people on the ground sober up about this quite quickly from the end of the war. Whitehall, maybe less so. I think there's still a tendency to view in the early days of the mandate as Jews being a kind of part of a powerful or influential block. You know, you still see expressions that there's like a kind of Turkish, Bolshevik, Jewish conspiracy against the British. Um, there's, and this all goes back even to before the war. Like there was, a, the British believed that Jews as a bloc were, support, were key to the success of the Committee of Union and Progress. Jews and, and um, crypto Jews, what are they called in Turkish? Uh, Dunmay, I think, right? Um, where, you know, they, they see them in kind of, as like a kind of secret conspiratorial group. Now, a few things happen to disabuse these notions. It's actually just after the war that um, the protocols of the elders of Zion are debunked in, in British newspapers. So this helps. But also I think people in Palestine, British officers see the reality on the ground. The other thing that's going on, of course, is a result of the Bolshevik revolution. You have this huge fracture among, in British politics about Jews after the war. So there's a tendency in conservative circles to be really hostile to Jews, to associate them with Bolsheviks, to assume that so the Balfour Declaration is basically bringing that revolution into the British Empire foolishly. Um, on the other hand, liberals and labor tend to actually resist these kinds of ideas and are more pro-Zionist. Um, the other thing on the conservative side is they believe that as the world's biggest Muslim power, it would be very foolish for the British Empire to alienate Muslim interests by supporting the Zionist policy in Palestine. So these, these conspiratorial ideas about, you know, po these populations spread around the world um, definitely 
afflict the kind of analytic abilities of intelligence officers for sure. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I guess it's always hard to remove uh, stereotypes and uh, to, to preconceived ideas about the local population, uh, whether they're Arabs or, or Zionist. And that made me think about... Uh, the late period of the British mandate, particularly from the 1930s onwards, when we have the Arab revolt from 1936 to 1939, and, and also the growing, uh, let's call it, uh, activism of the Zionists, which also, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the interview, began to form uh, uh, paramilitary organizations. And, and I was wondering, you know, how did uh, British intelligence change in relation to these events and these developments? Um, and also how eventually the British began to operate in order to get more uh, intelligence about these groups? And, and I know this is a long question also, to what extent this may have played a role after World War II when the British relinquished the mandate? Is there any sense that that was more like a, a long process rather than one that happened right after the war is just too expensive there's too much stuff going on and we, we relinquish the mandate right um so there is a kind of thread here um it's what i'm working on i suppose for the next book project which we can come back to uh, everything begins with the burak revolt in 1929 
this is, depends who you ask, either a premeditated plan to shock British policy with popular uprising or a spontaneous uh, revolution from below that kind of surprised everyone involved. And this is actually something when I'm teaching, we simulate this as a kind of uh, a matrix game, which is a lot of fun and it's interesting. So I use it to kind of test kind of some of the history skills and intelligence skills of our, our MA, MA students. But for me as an historian, it's very interesting to like simulate the what if, you know, is it possible for the British to stop the riots before they start? No, it turns out. Um, the, is it possible with different leadership in the Supreme Muslim Council that it wouldn't happen? The answer is no. I mean, in our simulations, for what they're worth, you know. But anyway, the these violent outbursts, the first big ones for nearly a decade, and both the Zionists and the British look at their own systems and say, we have to invest more in this. So what emerges on the Zionist side is the beginning of a process to establish a permanent security intelligence bureaucracy that exists to serve the political side, not just the militias. And, and, the, and the Haganah develops its own intelligence capability in parallel. The British realize that they've not just underinvested in intelligence, but also actually police and security altogether. So they pour a lot of money into bringing more British police in to growing the number of Palestinian and Jewish police in the force. What emerges are kind of two parallel intelligence systems. One is organized around the police and its criminal investigation department or CID the British secret police. And the other revolves around the military. Now the Air Force is still in charge of security until the revolt breaks out in 36. And so it's organized by the air staff. They're doing more or less the same work. I have nearly the entire run of their reports and the CIDs from 1931-ish to 1938-ish, and more, more or less like until the outbreak of the revolt, they're covering the same topics in the same order, but just with a different perspective. The CID is involved with, is a civilian arm of government, right? There is a project to make the mandate work, especially after Britain rescinds the, the white paper which would have limited Jewish immigration, started to give concessions to Palestinians, start the process of handing legislative control over these issues to the local population on democratic basis, et cetera. Um, so the moment the British put an end to this process and actually maintain the system of open Jewish immigration, so far as the country can absorb it, they, um, which is the center of obviously the Zionist Palestinian dispute, the British used this moment to, first of all, the CID look at uh, ways to support government policy 
and liberalize the country, make democracy more uh, possible in the future should this policy ever change again. So high commissioners look at what had happened after the Barak revolt and they say, well, if we can't give them what they want, we can start giving them the kind of government that they would want without the democracy. So to us, it sounds pathetic, of course. It's not anything you or I, I think, would actually want to live with. From the British point of view at the time, this is the best they can get away with. They feel completely bound by the Zionist policy and um, especially since the latest attempt to change it falls apart. And many British officers do want to change it. They do see this as a problem. On the other hand, there are, hand, there are a good number of British officers who are quite supportive and don't care what the Palestinians think and think that as a colonial project, it's better to have a friendly, powerful group like the Zionist colonists, right? Um, so what you see, which I think is really interesting, is the CID starts to gear its reports toward perspective of the civilian government and the high commissioner. So the high commissioner is working as collaboratively as he can with Amin al-Husseini, who's the Mufti of Jerusalem. And for every bit of evidence that comes out about him maybe financing, you know, the Black Hand Society, which is assassinating his opponents or um, threatening people's lives for, you know, violating the boycott of British and Jewish goods, that kind of thing, or being involved as land brokers, they kind of de-emphasize that. On the other hand, the military intelligence under the air staff, that's all they focus on. As you see, he's up to no good. Um, and that's that kind of competition in the, in the paper record was a lot of, provided a lot of fodder for me to write about at least. There's also, these aren't the only two agencies, right? The listening station at Tarafan is very important. They actually don't provide much on Palestine. They're based in Palestine, but they're listening to the entire region. So actually there are any diplomatic historians out there. I mean, you have the entire like French empire in the Middle East, Italian empire in the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Iraq, all their diplomatic communications translated to English available for use at the UK National Archives and hardly anyone uses them to my shock. You also have other, like there is an SIS station, MI6, that is that's James Bond one, you know, um, in Jerusalem. We don't know that much about what they're doing. I believe they're in charge of kind of providing uh, cryptographic systems, like keeping the code safe, basically. Um, and we know that they are reporting on the situation, but very little of their records survive. I found fascinating what you just said, that uh, there was this listening post and essentially covering the all or the Middle East. And it made me think how uh, the Italians were trying to influence the Arabs through Radio Bari, uh, airing essentially throughout Palestine. But on the other hand, while the British might not have been up to that game, the, on the other hand, they were actually able to gather much more information 
uh, throughout the region, or at least it's what it mm -hmm. sounds like. I, I want to move to ask a, a few things here because we don't have much time, but I have a few questions. And one again is about your work, what you're talking about in the book, about uh, obviously the, the question of uh, British intelligence vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the group, sort of the emergence and growth of uh, Zionism, terrorism in Palestine, which I would say culminated in 1946 with the bombing of the King David Hotel. And so I was wondering if you can give us a sense of, uh, first of all, what is this terrorism? And how did the British relate to it, um, not just in relation to the bombing in Jerusalem, but at large in Palestine? So on terrorism, all, the, all I'll say is what I tell my students in that there are so many different definitions from terrorism of terrorism. And I think that's a kind of characteristic of the phenomenon and actually tells us a lot about it. If I was to use a definition, I would call it illegal warfare. That's it. So not about its moral legitimacy, I would pull morality away from this and actually talk about what are the structures we have in kind of world society and what do all these terrorist groups have in common and that they are warriors and that they are operating outside the bounds of international and state law. Fine. Um, so that's that. Let's park that for a minute and just <laughs> work from there. The Moving into the Second World War, there are three kind of armed groups. Well, actually two and then three. Um, you have the Haganah, which means defense, and it's very large. And it begins as a territorial militia. It doesn't, it's static. It's there to protect Jewish colonies. It has a general staff of its own. But it's all volunteer run. It's very informal, kind of very East Europe revolutionary underground style of organization in the beginning. Second World War changes all that. Haganah's cooperation with the British during the Second World War means that they professionalize rapidly. Every skill that they get from the war is reintroduced through its own education system. So you, you have someone working in signaling, very important military skill, learning communication security, how to properly transmit codes without making mistakes, etc. Well, um, they bring that knowledge back and everyone learns it. You uh, have people learning how to do sabotage and blow things up and use parachutes and, you know, this kind of covert action. Again, those skills are spread in Haganah. So the Haganah of 1939 is not the same as Haganah of 1945, and that's very important. The same process happens to the intelligence services, which coordinate very closely with the British, do a lot to, um, there's an assumption on the Zionist side that just like with the First World War, if we help in the Second World War, we co cooperate despite the white paper, then we'll be rewarded after the war. And so this explains the terrorism as well, um, which I'll come to. So the founding chief of the Mossad, which is Israel's foreign intelligence gathering body, is Reuven Shiloach, um, then was known as Zaslani. He is the main liaison between the Jewish agency's intelligence unit and the British army. Teddy Kalik takes over this role, future mayor of Jerusalem takes on over this role from Shiloh around 1943, 44. 
Um, they're doing a number of things. They produce a bulletin of kind of surveying political events in the region that they give to the US and British armies. They are producing more kind of specialized reports for their wartime partners. They're volunteering, sending, you know, German speaking units behind enemy lines, sending uh, parachutists into the Balkans, et cetera, to like send messages back. And all with this expectation that there'll be a prize afterward, right? And, and the immigration restrictions is the prize. Meanwhile, you have the Irgun, which has been breaking away from Haganah over kind of, right, they're on the right wing of the political spectrum, whereas Haganah is quite socialist. Um, they also don't believe in Haganah's defensive policy toward Palestinians. So during the revolt, Irgun start engaging in reprisal attacks. They use their arms that they have to attack Palestinian civilians after Jews are attacked. This alienates the British, um, but it's not something they focus on seriously. They start to worry about Irgun after the issue of the white paper, where there is a kind of, they plan to stage this rev revolt in Jerusalem, seize government offices, blow up telegraph lines, et cetera. They, their plans are discovered and the kind of leadership of Irgun are rounded up and arrested. And shortly after that, the, you know, some of Haganah's leadership are rounded up and arrested as well for illegal drilling. There's a kind of a sign of Britain's commitment to enforce the white paper. Come the fall of France, Britain has a problem. They're alone in the war. So they start to treat Haganah with more kind of conciliatory gestures. Come the Rashid Ali coup in Iraq and Vichy grip in Syria and the likely, what they believe at the time is a likely German intervention in Syria. 1941, the British spring all the Irgun prisoners they have. They declare a kind of ceasefire for the duration of the war. And Irgun volunteers are used to help suppress the Rashid Ali coup in Iraq. Now, fast forward to 1944, Begin has just taken over control of Irgun. Um, its former leader, Raziel, David Raziel has been killed in Iraq, by the way, in the Mossad, um, reinterred his bones uh, in the 50s, I believe, in a special operation. But he, Begin sees things differently. He doesn't believe in the ceasefire. He's from the right wing of the right wing parties, right? So he was like a follower of like Abba Himayir and, you know, the kind of maximalists who were pro-fascist and so on. He's not a fascist. He doesn't share their ideology, but he shares their belief that actually immediate action is more important. And that starting revolt against the British now in early 1944 makes sense because even though the war's still on, Getting them to change their policy and rescue more Jews is the goal. That's his idea. So he begins a bombing campaign in Palestine of uh, against British institutions, symbols, that kind of thing. The third terrorist group is Lehi, the Freedom Fighters for Israel, also known as the Stern Gang. 
this group is did believe in fascism. They uh, wrote letters to Mussolini and Hitler after the Irgun ceasefire, which they did not believe in. They resisted. Um, so they took what arms they had and separated. Now we're dealing with a small population, probably never more than about 300 in, in Lehi. Nonetheless, they, you know, this overture to Britain's enemies, it's not a good look. By the way, the Stern Gang is the last terrorist organization to call themselves terrorists for what it's worth. They are, this, just to give you a sense of how, you know, agnostic I am toward this word and, and how important it is to like, separate the morality from it right it really shows you a lot that people used to call themselves that on purpose for you know and had their reasons for doing so stern gang took to murdering individuals so one of the more famous attacks was in revenge for the assassination of um abraham stern the founder year he was known as later known he um was shot while trying to escape by the British police. And this is a euphemism that British colonial police use all over the world, of course. So the Stern Gang identifies a member of the CID who is good at Hebrew, not good, he's fluent in Hebrew, even though he's a Brit and he's, um, you know, has no ties to the country. He's actually is dating Shoshana Borohov, the daughter of Dovber Borohov. Um, his name is Thomas Wilkin, and he was shot while leaving. Um, is he leaving headquarters or is he leaving King David Hotel? One or the other um, by the Stern Gang. So this is the kind of thing they did. They also assassinated Joseph Davidescu, who was a Jewish officer of the British Security Service in Haifa um, for, hand, for passing information, which led to the arrest of Lord Moyne's assassins. So terrorism becomes a huge problem for the British in 1944, especially after the British minister in the Middle East, Moyne, is assassinated. Jewish agency adopts a policy of full cooperation. They pass whatever intelligence they have, and most is quite good, to the British that helps them capture these terrorists and stop plans, and actually they're quite effective at that. The moment the war is over, the moment there's a new government, the Atlee government now, actually, you find out that your prize that, you, that I've been talking about, this prize we've been waiting for, it's not coming. The British insist on maintaining immigration restrictions. So Ben-Gurion, who sees the white paper as complicit in genocide, basically, is so angry, he actually starts proposing arming illegal migrants, training them in so that they could fight their way into Palestine. Haganah talks them down from this. Instead, they plan a strategy of cooperating with the terrorist groups against the British, basically switching sides in this terrorism struggle. Now, the British are reading his codes too. They know exactly what's going on at very high levels, but with signals intelligence, you have to be very careful. It's very easy for people to blow a source, expose it, when you don't believe that someone will die as a, as a result. You know, if this was an informer whose life was on the line, I think human beings tend to be more protective. But if it's just kind of plug boards and sketch pads with codes on them, what does it cost you, the politician, right? 
Um, so the British are really cautious not to share this with anyone. One of the things they have to do is sit on this information, not tell the police till a later stage um, why, you know, the, they can't know what they know. The other thing is they've involved the Americans in the Palestine problem and they have to wait for this Anglo-American Commission of, uh, Committee of Inquiry to finish its proceedings. So when Alan Cunningham wants to crack down on Ben-Gurion and the Jewish agency, they have to tell him to wait. So what comes out is in the reports, you see a lot of confusion. People don't, uh, British officers struggle to understand why Haganah sometimes seems to be helpful and sometimes not. And it's not until mid-1946 they realize fully what's going on, and it's partly because the British have um, shared this intelligence with the police and all these other agencies. So what they do is they plan an operation of arrest that, to like crack down on the Jewish agency, shut everything down. Haganah know all about it, and they publish it on their radio station. The British have to rethink things. They wait another 10 days, they try again, and they crack down, and they close the Jewish agency, they intern a great number of its staff, um, several truckloads of documents, etc. Backbenchers in labor want to know, how could you close this constitutionally mandated body that we need to have legitima legitimizes our rule? And the British government needs an answer. They're still working through all the documents they've captured. And there's no like smoking gun proof in there because of course the Zionists have had forewarning. They've cooperated with the British for years. They know their systems. They have their own walls in there. A lot of my best material, archival material is not from British archives, it's from Israeli archives because they've stolen this from the British, right? So the British decide to publish their signals intelligence on Ben-Gurion proving that he's ordered cooperation with the terrorist groups. Wouldn't you know it, the Jewish agency changes its codes the next week and the British lose this source for about a, a year. What happens during that year? The final Jewish Arab conference in London, the British decision to refer the Palestine problem to the UN, UNSCOP, British decision to quit. So you can see this is an important period to not be able to read Ben-Gurion's messages. Um, so that's a pretty dramatic and important example, I think, of how these kinds of sources, your ability to read the other player's cards can really matter. Well, I said that reminds me the current situation between Ukraine and Russia. Information is, is vital. And, uh, you know, why the Russians probably thought about having the upper end uh, going into Ukraine, but the fact that the Ukrainians were fed with uh, good intelligence on Russians' positions then helped them to certainly stop them and make the war completely different. And again, yeah. you can see here in the, in the same wave, the inaccessibility to Ben-Gurion's uh, material then didn't give the British the possibility to control them. That brings me to the last question. You mentioned earlier that you are engaging in new work that includes also uh, the famous Radio Bari, which was mm -hmm. an Italian, Italian radio uh, station hiring 
from Bari, which is in the south of Italy, and it was very popular across Palestine, in fact, across the Middle East. Uh, we know for a fact that in a number of diaries and memoirs uh, of uh, Palestinians in Haifa, particularly in Jerusalem, uh, Radio Bari was played in many coffee shops and other places, private and public. It was very popular. And, and again, the idea was uh, for Mussolini to influence uh, the Arabs and to turn against the British. It didn't really work out in that way. No. But it's true that Arabs enjoyed those shows and programs. And in a sense, as uh, Andrea Stanton talked about in a, a famous book called in Jerusalem, actually it improved the Palest uh, Palestine broadcast uh, radio, which was a sort of the British uh, local radio. So what's your new uh, work about? So I, this is coming out soon with English Historical Review. This is a great spy story and one of the best documented cases of Palestinian espionage that I have. 1934-35, Italy's gearing up for the Abyssinian War, right? They're also thinking, as you mentioned, of ways to create more sympathy in the Arabic-speaking world for their imperial project. And they are looking at not just radio broadcasts, although this is very important, especially in the British know they have a problem on this front. Like BBC World Service's um, Arabic station is like their response to Radio Barry. And they know, for instance, that Palestinians don't want to listen to like high-minded programs in Fusha. Like this is not a popular material. Anyway, a few things are happening. The British Signals Intelligence Organization, GCNCS, today known as GCHQ, learns in 1934 that the Italian consul in Jerusalem, D'Angelis, if I'm not mistaken, has um, been given instruction and funds to start buying off newspaper editors and getting them to write pro-Italian propaganda, basically. And I also, propaganda is like with me for, like terrorism is the word I try and take out the kind of emotional weight and meaning from it. Let's just, I think of it as the same way as marketing or sales or like, so I'm going to use the word that doesn't mean I think it, it means, um, but it, it doesn't mean it's nonsense. It just means that there's a kind of political intent to persuade. That's it. Again, the British can't do much about this. It's a very good source, but if you act on it, you lose the source better to keep this source, monitor the situation. So the intelligence officers are thinking, okay, how can we expose this? Fast forward to the new year, 1934-35, the pro-Husseini paper of Jamia al-Arabiya begins to publish Shakib Arslan's writings. Shakib Arslan is a very famous pan-Islamist. She's based in uh, Switzerland at this time. And he has started to be quite cozy with Mussolini, actually, and is accepting his money. He doesn't like this to be well known. A man of his stature taking bribes didn't look good. He was quite embarrassed of this. He wasn't poor, but he wasn't liquid. So cash was quite helpful. So they're pu publishing his pro-Italian pieces, especially about their grievances against Ethiopia. And Palestinian newsmen from other papers look at this and say, well, that's weird. 
here's the guy who championed the Arab cause against Italy for decades, basically, since 1911. Suddenly, he's on their side. This doesn't make any sense. The British noticed this too. The Zionists noticed this too. Although they're probably weakest in this drama I'm about to tell. The, what begins is a kind of series of pro-Italian articles which emerge. At the same time, the newspaper, uh, Al-Islamiya, right, um, with uh, Al-Faruqi, um, who's a sheikh and he's, he really doesn't like the mufti, he doesn't like that this basically uneducated peasant is in charge of Islamic law in Palestine. Um, but he's a nationalist and he just doesn't like that all this power is in the hands of this guy. He also thinks it's weird and he's the editor of a prominent paper that's very popular with the younger activist politicians and their followers. And so he starts to write articles against Arslan and against the Mufti. Okay, Hajj is coming in around March this time. And they're all planning to go and meet in Cairo. All the different Arab parties are sending delegations to Cairo. That they're going to meet and kind of exchange names and kind of gather together and organize a political program before they go to pilgrimage. In Cairo, a letter is handed to a, a colleague uh, at Al Jamia Al Arabiya. It's delivered to Munif Al Husseini in Jerusalem, who's the Mufti's cousin and the editor, the co-editor of the newspaper. Munif is supposed to give it to Amin al-Husseini. Now, Amin al-Husseini is looking, looking fine from the Italian side, right? There's no evidence that he's involved in this until this letter comes into being. And a spy of the oppos Palestinian opposition parties actually sees this letter. And the gist of it is, Arslan is encouraging Haj Amin to get off the fence, choose sides, stop collaborating with the British, to come out against them and support pan-Arab cause and to join Arslan's pro-Italian campaign. The spy tells Palestinian opposition leader Fakhri Nasheshibi, who takes this information to the British. Fakhri also organizes uh, someone to forge Arslan's handwriting. They publish this forgery in the newspaper and a press war ensues. Arslan and the Mufti immediately come out and say, this is a forgery. They don't admit that the gist of it is true, which it is, but they are basically focused on the fact that this is a kind of slander and that the, act, that the real scandal is not that they're supporting Britain's enemies or that they're taking money, it's that someone forged their letter. So what happened? I figured it out. And the article basically proves that yes, it's a forgery. And this is something that a lot of authors have mentioned in passing, but basically, they either say, agree with Husseini and Arslan and say, it's a forgery and it's nonsense. Or they say, yeah, it's a forgery, but it's, um, the gist of it is true. Or, you know, some other kind of more agnostic position. So I proved that, it, that it, like just through a simple handwriting analysis that it's 100% a forgery, a bad one. And um, also, like, you don't have to read Arabic to see, you know, the... Other thing that I think is really interesting about this case is I was able to show how it came into being. So who's our spy? Working at the at Jamia Al Arabiya is a journalist named Abdulkar Rashid. He's from the Muhtasib family in Hebron in Khalil. 
Hebron. He lives in Jerusalem. He's married to a Jewish woman, also from Hebron. Uh, her name is Mazal. I suspect that after the Burak revolt, Jewish agency and their intelligence services were able to get to him, noting the vulnerability of being married to a Jewish woman from Hebron, of working for people whose propaganda inspired the murder probably of her relatives and friends and neighbors and so on. Rashid actually gives testimony at the Shah Commission, plays along, he says, he shows that art that was published in his newspaper proves that the Jews intended to take over the Temple Mount, so nonsense, but like, he plays along. However, his name comes up again and again from 1930-31 onwards, in Jewish agency intelligence reports under different code names and stuff. They're suspicious of him from time to time, but he's actually one of their best sources because not only does he work for the newspaper, he works in the SMC, in the Supreme Muslim Council, and from time to time he's doing work for Jamal Husseini in the Arab Congress. What else do you need, right? So what I think happened is Rashid sees the letter, is the one who is able to report on the gist of it to Palestinian opposition leaders, and the kind of case snowballed from there. The British, by the way, encourage Fakhri to publish the forgery because, as I mentioned at the beginning, they're looking for a way to expose Italian propaganda. They can't use their good sources. So what happens as a result? The whole case explodes in the papers, leads to a lot of increased tension between Hosseini and these opposition journalists. He tries to attack all of them the next year. And I think it's not because of their position on the revolt or the boycott. I'm quite convinced it's because of this case of slander, as he saw it. And actually Arslan's diary, or sorry, Arslan's letters to Husseini, which are found in Husseini's wartime archive, discuss this case. They, they talk about it in 1944, so many years later, like nine years later. And Arslan basically thanks him for murdering men and journalists who had been slandering him and people who'd been against the movement, says these are your mujahideen who did it, and God thanks you, and so on and so on. It's quite a heavy case, but actually at the time in 1935, it does two things. One, it paradoxically strengthens Husseini's position in Palestinian politics, because it turns out most Palestinians don't give a shit about where he stands on Italy, they see this as evidence that he's standing up for them. And boy, does that firm up his popularity. And timing couldn't be better for him because the cement incident, which kicks off the path to the Palestinian revolt, is about to happen, right? On the Italian propaganda side, again, things backfire. British thought that by exposing this, they might put a stop to it. What ends up happening is the Italians look at their situation in Palestine. They've already begun their campaign in Ethiopia. What do they have to lose but to try harder? And actually, they send more money to the Italian consul, and he actually successfully ends up recruiting several newspapers to publish pro-Italian pieces. Not that it mattered, and this all comes to an end, you know, with the Italian Anglo-Italian agreement a few years later. But it's a kind of really good illustration of what what happens when you kind of authorize these kind of you know, covert action without really thinking in the big picture and strategy and, again, understanding your audience and what their interests and intentions are. This was Dr. Stephen Wagner, Senior Lecturer in International Security at Brunel University in London. Stephen, thank you so much.
Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.